This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. I think there is no longer any doubt on the conventional energy side that fossil-based energy will decline. I think that is now table stakes conversation. The question always is, when? So is this a 30-year transition? Is it a 50-year transition back to the timing? I think that's really the question that comes in. That's McKinsey senior partner, Homayoon Tai. He and partner Anna Moore are here to talk about how to navigate the trade-offs along the path to net zero. And after, we'll hear an excerpt from our discussion with Columbia professor Bruce Usher about his new book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. This comes from our Author Talk series. Anna and Homayoon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. A little more than a year ago, leaders around the globe gathered at COP26 and they made clear commitments to reach net zero emissions goals. The war in Ukraine continues to unfold. How disruptive do you think this war will continue to be? The Ukraine crisis does bring into question this duality that we talk about, which is really on the one hand, we're pushing towards net zero. On the other hand, we talk about affordability, energy security and supply, system resiliency when you go fully pushed into renewables and other kinds of alternative energy. But the commitment to net zero doesn't change. There's definitely a disruption right now. We knew this path would never be linear, moving to net zero, that we would have setbacks and step forwards. The step forwards, by the way, are technology, innovation, regulation, other things like that. The questions are, one, can we continue to allocate capital in a way that makes you know, that long-term trajectory that Humayun was describing still a reality? But we need to be sure that we're continuing to allocate capital towards decarbonization investments. The economics of green hydrogen projects has come forward as a result of comparative investments in, con- in conventional fuels now looking more expensive, right? But... Um, That doesn't mean that you necessarily have capital inflows shifting. These are long-term projects. Um, And so we need to be sure that we're actually allocating capital in this way. But I think what this also highlights is a broader point that we make in the piece around trade-offs along the path to net zero. We also have trade-offs between different, if you like, sustainability goals. So I would highlight, for instance, decarbonization versus water consumption. We also have trade-offs of course, with respect to job creation and job preservation. And so, of course, we have this near-term, short-term trade-off in the context of the Ukraine crisis, but I think it highlights a broader set of trade-offs and decisions that we need to make at the company and society level about what is good look like. So in this decade, the 2020s is a critical decade because those investments, to Anna's point, are going to last long and they're going to decarbonize over the next 20, 30 years. The longer the investments get delayed, and we do see live investments getting delayed, the harder it will be to hit the 2050 number in terms of net zero. So when we think about long-term, short-term, it is quite material. What happens now is not just about the short run. It sets the path to a long-term target for 2050. I want to take up this short-term, long-term trade-off 
In particular, as you said, we've talked a bit about affordability as an example of the tension between short-term shocks, longer-term imperatives, gas price spiking as an effect of the war. How do you view the economic calculus for leaders? Does net zero really have to be zero sum, in other words? On the long term, of course not. You know, we've published research in our Playing Offense report around the 9 to $12 trillion a year we believe will be created by the 2030s in new green value pools. And that covers everything from carbon management to sustainable materials to new energy to new energy infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. We believe that companies, the window of opportunity on many of these areas is time bound. So I'll take sustainable materials as one example. You know, we see a 50 to 60% supply demand gap for low carbon steel by 2025, you know, closing to about 35% gap by the 2030s. And by the end of the 2030s, closing entirely because we'll have more capacity online. And so steel producers who want to scoop up that additional margin and capture that green value pool will be those who bring investments online now. Um, And so we would say, you know, as we advise clients typically to invest during a downturn, I think that's particularly acute right now, especially because so many investments are being delayed. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't also need to keep the lights on in the core business while we go through this transition. And so we talk in the article about what does that practically mean for CEOs? And I would highlight recognizing that there's not going to be one successful technology pathway, for instance, and that we will need to invest in maintaining and preserving the core business while also investing in the new. And it puts particular emphasis on the CEO's role in balancing those investments. A transition to net zero, as you're saying, requires this massive upfront investment on a variety of fronts. Where can CEOs look to find that capital? Part of this, I think, is investors changing their investment criteria and capital allocations towards more sustainable technologies. You know, the most famous example, of course, is Mark Carney and GFANS and the 130 trillion um, of assets under management that are committed to a net zero pathway. You know, fantastic. We also, in the first half of this year, saw 120 billion dollars in net new money going to sustainable funds. So we have indeed capital that's flowing towards brown to green transition as well as to new green investments. Again, in the spirit of introducing and acknowledging some of the nuance, we also continue to have capital flows towards conventional technologies and energies. And so where is the capital coming from to fuel the transition? It's coming from investors focusing more on sustainability and shifting their asset allocation. But, you know, we will continue to have capital flows towards conventional technologies as well. And it becomes a question of how we manage that balance uh, over time. Anna, can you share a client example of a brown to green transition? One client that I work with, they're in cement and building materials. Cement, as you know, notoriously highly emitting in about 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. In the cement world, we've got a real trade-off between new materials, alternatives to cement versus decarbonizing existing production. And so as a management team, this client has needed to think through, one, what does this mean for our M&A strategy? Two, what does it mean for the scale of decarbonization investments that we make in our existing facilities? 
you know, if it costs us hundreds of millions for every asset to decarbonize, how do we do that over what phasing? And then three, how do we think about cannibalizing ourselves or not, right? If there are real alternatives and substitute materials, you know, do we do that to ourselves now? Do we wait for others to bring this to the market? And, you know, do we grow some of that internally through our own R&D or, you know, do we buy in or partner with existing, you know, exciting startups that are coming from the wider ecosystem? And so that also means a shift in how we think about our workforce and in the types of skills and partnerships that we need. It's one illustration of, of how one business is thinking about this, but I think also gives you a sense of the diversity of areas or range of areas where these kinds of trade-offs show up in the decisions that the management team needs to take. Maybe a couple of things to add here. I think the step up on both the public and private side uh, will be important. And there's a whole public sector theme here as well. Particularly when we talk about global north, global south, when you look at it from a global south perspective, it has been the role of policy and governments that are stepping in to really push the decarbonization investments, as well, of course, as the, the conventional investments that are needed. On the private side, there are certainly dedicated funds towards decarbonization that are that are increasing. There's a lot of debate and controversy recently around ESG funds and what those markers are. And this is quite regionally different. So when you talk about North America, the nuance is different than when you talk about Europe or you talk about Japan, for example. But the private sector funds that are dedicated, that's another source that's coming in. And then if you look at new businesses that'll be emerging, that incumbent source of capital using those balance sheets is going to be another large piece of capital infusion that's going to come into new growth businesses or decarbonization businesses. So this is traditional businesses reinvesting in, in new businesses. And then you, of course, have the VC, private equity, infrastructure, uh, fund financing, sovereign wealth capital that is really now focused on green investing, decarbonization investment. And so that is another slug of, of capital that will come in. So at the end of the day, there will be blends of public-private that will come in. And again, very nuanced by region. What does what we are calling here playing offense look like in this context? One, if you like, signifier of a successful playing offense strategy is you know, making long-term investments while preserving short-term. I think the other element of it is capturing a green premium and being very laser focused on where there truly is market share gain or green premium to be had from new sustainable value pools. We see a premium, as we've spoken about, for steel. We don't see such a premium, for instance, for green copper, simply because the existing market is already quite tight. And so companies need to be quite granular in going through and assessing where do I truly have premium or market share gain as a consequence, and then steer your playing offense strategy a bit around that. I would call out, for instance, you know, carbon management as a fundamentally new um, sector in the economy that we estimate will be 100 to $200 billion a year. I think you also see, for instance, tooling and machinery companies shifting from serving oil and gas to serving renewables. It's tweaking the existing asset base to match a bit where the direction of travel is around sustainability. I think the final one to call out that's a marker of a successful playing offense strategy is around building the partnership muscle. Because there's so much uncertainty, which we've spoken about together in this conversation, you know, the, the best way to manage that is to share it with your supply chain partners. So I would call out, for instance, the automotive OEMs 
who have been increasingly working with steel producers, aluminum producers, plastics manufacturers in order to design you know, decarbonized cars and to share a little bit of the risk. So signing long-term supply agreements, redesigning together what they want the automobile to look like, what it's going to be made out of, how they're going to price it, you know, what they think consumer willingness to pay looks like and how they share that value across their value chain. Um, and so really getting quite specific with your supply chain partners as well in order to share uh, the risk and the benefit. Those are a few areas. Humayun, what's on your mind? If you think about some of the traditional oil and gas companies that are seeing in the long term the decline in the need for oil in, in various forms that are now saying and turning to real balance sheet commitment to a clean fuels build out and assessing different businesses in the clean fuels broader spectrum. We see utilities that have committed now completely going from building fossil to renewables. And in many cases, it's a bit of a blend, particularly back to the global south. Other examples are technology companies on the chip side and advanced electronics that are committing more capital to and, and more resources to building out services and technologies for energy transition. So for example, smart inverters, building that before the full demand gets there. So taking that kind of risk and going on the offense. Homian, how should CEOs think about risk and reward when they're allocating investments to this kind of brown to green transition? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different elements to consider. First is just the pure financial aspect of it. So if I decarbonize and I shut down my coal power plant and I now am uh, building a renewables power plant, what's the economics of that given the marginal cost? So that's clear. Second thing is then what are the policies that then shape stranded asset risk. So for brown assets, that's a big question. In, in many different jurisdictions, there are subsidies or funds or things that, that companies can access, government funding to ameliorate the challenge of the stranded asset. And in many cases, that ecosystem pushes policy to at least negotiate what that stranded cost transition is. The third thing then is where do you lean forward and say, it may not make financial sense right now in the short run, but when we do our calculations and we look at the uptick in the market demand for green steel, for example, customers willing to pay a premium in 10 to 15 years, that actually makes sense when we factor that in. And that's not a cost of capital issue necessarily, that's a revenue line issue. So in, in the way I would think about modeling the cash flows of that investment. So that then requires foresight and intuition and some risk taking to say, how will markets shape up? How will customer demand shape up? How will policy shape up to actually create that level of offtake to create the conditions, potentially the policy conditions in which we will have to do or others that rely on our products will have to actually buy a, a zero carbon or, or close to zero carbon product. Anna, anything to add? As companies think through you know, risk reward trade-off, I think there's clearly a question around timing, scale, return on you know, brown to green investments but also questions around more fundamentally, how does the business model need to shift and how do my skills to support that need to adjust? And you know, where could I have stranded sustainable asset risk uh, in addition to brown asset risk? So in terms of what are some of the risk reward trade-offs, let's take an example from telecoms. If previously many cell phone manufacturers you know, effectively built their business around, I replace your phone once every year or two years, something like this. 
If you think forward to a 2050 world where we're consuming fundamentally less, that business model needs to change, right? And so how I get value needs to fundamentally shift. You know, if you think about it in the built environment as well, of course, we need to decarbonize cement and concrete. We also need to despecify buildings. And that also means getting engineers and regulators to be comfortable with using less cement and concrete. You know, that means also changing professional liability. It means reskilling. I think second area of uncertainty is around competition between different um, decarbonization investments or pathways. You know, Humayun mentioned the stranded asset risk for many existing brown assets. I think we're also going to have stranded sustainable asset risk. And you can think through areas where there's competition between different decarb pathways. For example, cross-laminated timber versus green cement and concrete. You know, we will presumably have a mixture of both, but to what extent? And you're going to have competition between those different materials and potentially stranded asset risk. In Europe, there's a huge debate around using biomass. And surely, at least in the near to medium term, we're going to use biomass as an energy source. But, you know, ultimately, we will evolve beyond that. And so you also end up with stranded transitional technology risk. When you are talking to CEOs, does the notion of declining consumption and declining demand resonate? How, how do CEOs respond to that possibility and potentiality? I think from, a, from an energy perspective, I think there is no longer any doubt on the conventional energy side that, that the need for conventional energy or fossil-based energy rather will decline. I think that is, I would say even a couple of years ago, that was still a question. I think that is now a table stakes conversation. The question always is when? So is this a 30-year transition? Is it a 50-year transition back to the timing? And then we come back to full circle to the short-term, long-term, and what you believe. Back to demand, I think many CEOs would, or most CEOs would say, yes, demand will reduce for fossil fuel energy, but is 2050 really the right time frame, or do, does it get pushed out a decade or so or five years or whatever that may be? I think that's really the question that comes in. I think those that don't grapple with the way in which we do need to reduce consumption risk finding that we haven't made the progress that we need to. We're starting to see more acute changes in the climate and in you know the livability of our world that then lead to much sharper um, and more challenging policy shifts, right? We end up with a disorderly transition. And so I think companies can get ahead of that by thinking through what is a sustainable 2050 business model look like and what would it look like in order to you know fundamentally reimagine my business? We don't have the crystal ball to know, obviously, when exactly the, the transition year, do we hit the carbon budget a certain year or, or not that Anna's talking about? But we do know that more and more attention will need to shift to adaptation. And so this is when we're not hitting the carbon budget. Uh, we're, we're seeing more material effect in climate and climate impacts on society. And so in that case, what are the opportunities, business opportunities for, for leaders to say, we will make the world a safer place where adaptation becomes important. So that's that's one thing. And back to the Global South perspective, that is a very important perspective from uh, countries that, that don't have the means that the OECD economies do. 
because adaptation is going to be a reality. We know that the global south is going to bear more of the cost of this transition. So adaptation is important and it becomes an opportunity in, in some ways. The other thing is biodiversity. So going beyond just the climate piece and thinking about biodiversity, of which we would include water and some of the nature-based capital aspects. What are opportunities there that companies will play an increasingly important role as the carbon budget may fall short? And so how do we get ready for impacts on biodiversity and water? And and therefore, what are the opportunities there for, for companies to, to support? Great discussion. Anna and Homiun, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And now let's hear about the role investors can play in helping companies achieve their net zero goals. From Columbia professor Bruce Usher, author of the book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. The most valuable companies globally are tech companies, right? Okay, now let's forward 30 years, because that's what matters to investors, obviously. What will impact business and investors more than anything in the next three decades? And my answer is climate change. We've got three decades to completely rebuild this entire global economy that we just spent the last 300 years creating. And that's going to require extraordinary amount of investment capital. Estimates are 100 to 150 trillion dollars. Investing that capital is going to create for investors new risks, new opportunities. The actions the investors take over the next three decades, they're going to change the planet. They're going to remake that global economy and reduce emissions to meet those science-based targets. And how they go about doing that, how quickly that capital is invested, and how effectively it's invested, is going to make all the difference in terms of allowing us to avoid catastrophic climate change. The reality is that capital exists, but mobilizing that capital and investing it is a pretty significant challenge. But in the context of many of the other great challenges that society faces, this one we actually have at hand the ability to solve it. If we look at, say, electric vehicles, there was nothing we could put on the highway. It's really just golf carts was about as far as you could go. Today, that situation completely changed. We have technologies and business models that already exist today to reduce more than half of global emissions. And those products are commercial and they are scalable already today. And then we actually already also have technologies to reduce the other half of the emissions we need to get down to zero. Those already exist and they didn't exist a couple decades ago. Uh, they're not yet commercial, but they're under development and many of them are already being financed by venture capitalists and other early stage investors. So for investors, understanding which sectors of the economy are, how they're gonna change and which companies are going to be successful as those changes manifest themselves. It's challenging. I would recommend that investors follow five different uh, tactics. Take the long view. Bill Gates famously said a number of years ago, we, we tend to overestimate the changes that are going to occur in the next two years, and we underestimate the changes that are going to occur in the next 10. The second recommendation I would have is beware of greenwashing. A lot of companies are making promises that they cannot meet or do not intend to meet. The third recommendation is a term I learned years ago when I worked as a trader in finance, and that term is the trend is your friend. The fourth recommendation I would make is to avoid businesses that anticipate a change in human behavior. 
our human behavior is very set in our ways. Beyond Meat does not try to say to people you shouldn't eat meat. It's saying we've got a product for you that tastes an awful lot like meat. And the last advice, which is similar to the first one, is it's better to act early than late. What I found in researching for the book was the connections between these sectors are really important. Renewable energy, electric vehicles, energy storage, green hydrogen, and carbon removal. These are very separate industries, but in fact, they're very closely connected. And more importantly, as we see growth in one sector, they have serious ramifications for these other sectors. In fact, they sort of turbocharge growth in the other sectors for both technology reasons and having to do with capital and how these sectors work together. And that's really important because ultimately we have to move all of this in the same direction. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.